Named a best book of fall by BuzzFeed, Washington Post, and Vulture, Miriam Chauncey's novel, What Storm, What Thunder, brilliantly captures the trauma of disaster and the tenacity of the human spirit. Available everywhere books and ebooks are sold. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Kelifa Sene about his debut book, Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't get to join you for this interview, but I thought this sounded really fun. It was so fun for me because I used to be so obsessed and devoted to music and I've gotten the old person problem where I don't listen to it as much. And so this got me really excited about listening again and just all the music that I love actually comes, makes some appearance in here in some shape or form. Uh, But it's all about different genres of music and the history of those genres and how those genres are formed and how in turn they form popular music. Do you have a favorite genre? Good question. You know, I think my favorite genre was not one of the genres that are featured here because uh, ska. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I was. It's close. That's really close. Um, it's reggae. <laughs> it's oh. reggae. I think. Uh, I mean, I love all music, and I am one of those people. Like, there isn't a genre of music that I don't like, except maybe like, uh, which Califa gets into a little bit, which is like the rock rap yeah, uh, that came out in like maybe the early 2000s, like Limp Bizkit wasn't, wasn't a big fan, Kid Rock. I, I feel like there are more like genres made just for commercial reasons um, that I'm not as into, but I do love all music, but I would say my desert island music is reggae and maybe like in particular dub, which is like, I could just listen to that for the rest of my life. Wow, that is really that's really interesting information. Also, really perfect music for for a desert island. Honestly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's island music, and uh, yeah. So, how about you, Dan? I don't know. I don't know if I have a favorite genre. I feel like I went through stages as a as a kid and as a teen where I had really favorite genres. Like I would, you know, I had like a real rap phase. I was, and then I had like a punk phase, and then I had. I kind of like an alt phase in college. I mean, indie rock, that was like college. So, but now I don't, I don't know if I do, but I am a big, big fan of reggae too, actually. So maybe I'll just take yours. <laughs> cool. Okay. And, and uh, maybe you'll get inspired by listening to this interview. Yeah, let's do it. happy to be speaking with the writer Califa Sene today. Califa has been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 2008, and before that he served as a pop music critic for The New York Times for six years. His writing has also appeared in many other publications, including Rolling Stone, The Source, and The Village Voice, and has been anthologized multiple times into Capo's best music writing. He joins us today to speak about his debut book, Major Labels, a history of popular music in seven genres. An exhaustive, enthralling breakdown of the last 50 years of music, Major Labels diagrams the American sonic landscape, Alfred Barr style, and the discrete yet overlapping categories of rock, R&B, country, punk, hip-hop, dance, and pop. To my delight, Sene also pays close attention to the proliferation of genres within genres, covering everything from thrash metal to glitter rock, quiet storm to hip hop soul, and many more, revealing what these divisions mean, not only for the way music gets made, but how it's listened to and by whom. Welcome to the show, Khalifa. Thanks, Kate. I I can assure you that I have never been compared to Alfred Barr. There's a first in any case. <laughs> Thanks so much for that nice introduction. So, okay, I should mention that you and I know each other a little bit from when I lived in New York briefly That's right. in the early aughts. And that I knew that you were a critic at the time. And I'm sure I read your pieces in the New York Times, but mainly I knew you as a fellow Dr. Dog fan. That's right. <laughs> and I don't think Dr. Dog appears in this book. Sadly, not that they'll have to wait for the sequel. Right. But you did write about them for the New York Times. And it makes me wonder about just the giant macro genre of popular music, 
and what your beat was for the Times and what was off limits, if anything, for you to write about? Well, so I got to the Times. I was hired there in 2002. It was, as you could imagine, for someone like me, it was my dream job. Like I'd moved to New York a few years earlier and been like, oh man, I just want to be a music critic for the New York Times. Like even as a kid, I was kind of like interested in criticism in a like in a pop culture sense. I remember liking Statler and Waldorf, who are the critics on the Muppets who sit up in the box and say sarcastic things about the action. I remember seeing Kurt Loder on MTV and it's like this grumpy guy talking about the music. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. So yeah, I love the idea of being a music critic at the time and was lucky enough to get that job. And it was amazing because they were just kind of like, go out and write about music. There's a separate classical music staff. There's a separate jazz group that was, you know, Ben Ratliff and some folks. But everything else that was kind of popular was kind of in my orbit. And we tried to cover the stuff that was really making an impression on the pop charts or in the clubs. I mean, if someone sold a certain number of tickets or like sold out a small theater or a big club, it was like, okay, we've got to cover this. And every week we would sort of John Perellis, who was the chief pop music critic, we'd have some emails and we'd break down what we were going to cover that week. My own way of thinking about it was I figured I wanted to write about anything that was popular or good or interesting. And I tried to avoid writing about music that was interesting, but not popular. Or My thought was that there's too much coverage of music that is allegedly interesting, but not good or popular. And like, you know, oh, this person is doing this interesting thing and like no one's actually listening to it and it's fine. I'm always skeptical of that. So those were kind of the questions I always asked myself. Is this interesting? Is this popular? Is this good? And so, yeah, I kind of was able to follow my nose and there was stuff that I was particularly obsessed with. At the time, there was just this explosion in hip hop and regional hip hop. And I think when I first got there, the Times wasn't actually regularly reviewing albums. It was like based on reviewing live concerts. So at some point along those years, we started reviewing albums. But if I wanted to review a mixtape instead, like literally go down to Canal Street and buy a mixtape and review it, you know, that was fine. If I wanted to review like a reggae 45 or, you know, a music video or whatever, that was fine. So they really gave me a lot of freedom to kind of follow my nose and write about what I was interested in and make an argument for why it was interesting. At somewhere like the Times, I always figured that your average reader didn't necessarily know anything about the music I was writing about, didn't necessarily have any interest, and wasn't necessarily likely to ever hear it. So you're not like, oh, there's this death metal band from Poland called Behemoth, and like you should go check them out. It's like, no, you shouldn't necessarily go check them out, but maybe your day will be improved slightly if you spend a few minutes reading about this death metal band from Poland. And so hopefully my sense was that that was always what was, if I did my job right, that's kind of what I was doing, was giving people a sense of what was happening out there in the world, beyond the world they already knew. And then at the same time, hopefully writing something that if you were already a fan of the Polish band Behemoth, you would read what I wrote and think like, oh, that's interesting. Or like, that guy seems to understand something about the appeal of this band. So I always felt like I was writing for two audiences at once, people who knew the music and people who had no interest at all in the music. And did you have a similar rubric for the music that you were going to include in this book? I set out to do this insane and possibly foolhardy thing, which was to write a history of popular music of the last 50 years, basically the stuff that happened after the Beatles. And to do that in a way that would be hopefully fun and interesting. And so I figured the way to do that was to tell a story or tell a series of stories. And so I kind of used genres as my organizing principle. And it kind of became a book that was partly about genres. And I, I define a genre as a community of listeners and musicians. And often it's virtual community. Sometimes it's a bunch of people together in a club or in a record store or whatever, but often it's just a bunch of people across the country, across the world, who have an idea that they're interested in some of the same stuff. And so once you have those communities, you have a kind of ongoing argument about what music is supposed to sound like, what the assumptions are. And even if you're rebelling against those rules, even by rebelling, you're acknowledging that those rules exist. You're acknowledging that within the world of dance music, there are differing opinions about, you know, 
doing a DJ set using only vinyl versus producing your own tracks and playing quote unquote live using a laptop, right? If you're in country music, there is this ongoing debate about like, well, are you supposed to have banjo on your songs? Are you supposed to use a string section? Are you supposed to record your album with session musicians or are you going to use members of your touring band? And so even if you're rebelling against the rules of Nashville, that rebellion itself only makes sense and only has meaning because you are in some broad sense part of the country music community. If you're a rapper and you decide not to put a banjo on your album, like, you know, that's not even a decision and it's not a legible decision in the same way it is if you're a country singer. I think you're speaking to something that I found really compelling in the introduction, which was how much our sense of genre shapes the way we actually hear music. Which obviously within making, if you know you're working within a certain genre, there are expectations that you're either meeting or defying. But as the listener, I was curious if you could just talk a little bit more about how genre really does shape the way we hear music. Yeah, I mean, genre is related in some way to taste, right? Because without taste and without some ideas about what music should be or how it should work, it's really hard to make sense. A lot of people say they like to listen to all kinds of music, but you probably wouldn't trust someone if they said they listened to all music or that they liked all music. Like, A, I'm not sure that's possible, but B, it would mean that you had no taste, that you were making no judgments. And so genres help you kind of make judgments and make finer distinctions, right? If you listen to everything and you like dabble in this and that and you hear a little bit of death metal and you hear a little bit of some slow jams, like that's great and that's the way a lot of us do listen. But there's a certain kind of intensity you get from paying a lot of attention to a certain kind of music, right? And if you're that obsessed with hip hop and you're thinking about sampling and you're thinking about the way different kick drums sound on a track, you're engaged with it at a whole different level. And so I think most listeners, especially now, there are times when we move between different genres and different communities. And that's fun, right? Like part of the fun of listening to music is that you can be a tourist and go from world to world and feel like you're crossing boundaries. And crossing boundaries is fun, although, of course, you can only cross boundaries if boundaries exist. But that said, most of us as listeners often do have in our past and sometimes in our present a period of more intense engagement, a period where there's a some sort of canon of records that we can make reference to and our fellow listeners or our friends or the musicians we listen to know what we're talking about. Even if that canon of records comes from across different genres, you know, beyond a certain point, that could itself become a new genre. And we could say that like, oh, if you're into like cool, collectible, vintage records from the 70s, like, that could become a genre of its own. My former colleague at the New York Times, Ben Ratliff, has talked about how musical genres in pop music are kind of a record company plot. Like it's kind of a, it's kind of a conspiracy that the record industry uses to sell us music more efficiently. And I think that's true on the one hand, but on the other hand, not every plot is successful. And so part of the question about musical genres is, well, why was this plot successful? Like, okay, radio stations, you know, use genres to say, like, this is your home for blazing hip-hop R&B, or this is your leader in rock, or whatever, right? That's how radio stations sell themselves. But the question is, like, well, why did that work? Why were people willing to buy into those genres? And why is it that even if you're not living in entirely within the world of heavy metal, why is it that if you throw on a Slayer record, you feel like you're somehow entering into a community? And that's part of the thrill of listening to Slayer is like you're in it. And that has something to do with, a, I think, a fairly universal human tendency to want to form communities. And again, sometimes these are virtual communities or imaginary communities. That's true now, but that was true in the old days, right? You're sitting at home listening to a record and you're just like imagining all the other kids that are listening to that record in their bedrooms, and what they're like. And you're imagining what the world of the band is like. And you can enter into this. And so... Any community exists because of some complicated push and pull of inclusion and exclusion. And some people get to be in, but that means that some other people get to be out. And maybe they're out because they've never heard of this because you're only into the obscure stuff. Or maybe they're out because they're like not cool enough or not hip enough or they're too hip. And so I think as a listener, as a kid, and even to some extent now, that's stuff that I'm thinking about when I'm listening to music. I can't help but think about other people when I'm listening to music. You talk about your dawning of your own taste. 
when you discovered punk music and that punk yeah. could be the thing that kind of set you apart from other people. And that that could be a really contentious thing and that taste itself can be really contentious. And I guess I was curious, you know, how that played out for you in your own life, but just in more in general, like how is taste contentious? So for me, it was like, it was like someone flipped a switch. Like my friend Matt gives me a punk rock mixtape around the time of my 14th birthday. And I'm like, great, I'm in. Just sign me up to this movement. I'm going to throw away or actually push to the side my Rolling Stones cassettes and I'm just going to be a punk. And this is what I like. And the mainstream stuff is crap and I want nothing to do with it. I only want punk stuff. I only want weird stuff. And part of the, in retrospect, I'm like, well, why? It's like 1990 and somehow like my mind is being blown by the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and these bands from like 10, 15 years ago. Like, why? And, you know, I think part of the reason is because my mind was blown by the idea that you could reject things wholesale, that you could make some decisions about music. It wasn't just like, oh, it's a thing that everyone's into and you're into what your friends are into and it's fine. It's like, no, you can put your foot down and be like, no, I'm not like that. I'm like this. And so I was like totally committed to that. But what I discovered sort of slowly along the years is that that kind of punk identity, that kind of punk culture is unstable because it says like, you don't have to follow the rules. Like if you're making music, you can defy what everyone else does and do what you do. But if you start thinking like, oh, making music, you should reject the rules. At a certain point you say, well, like, well, who says? Like, who says that's the only way <laughs> to make music? And if you're seeking to defy expectation, then what does that really mean? And so to me, I kind of went all the way into listening to like Japanese noise music. I'm like, this is the like reductio ad absurdum of like how weird music could get, right? Like punk is cool, but like the Sex Pistols are basically a rock and roll band. But here's like a guy from Japan who calls himself Masona, whose album sounds like, you know, a garbage disposal. Like this is like the most punk. But then, of course, you find ways to rebel against that. Like, if your musical identity is based on rebellion, then it's got to keep moving because you're going to always find new things to rebel against. And, you know, in time, I kind of went back to the hip-hop records I'd listened to as a little kid and were like, oh, in a different way, these records are really rebellious too, right? I hear Aaliyah on the radio and I'm like, whoa, wait a second. This, like, R&B record sounds really crazy, really weird, really cool. And so... In a complicated way, punk sort of taught me to hear little bits of rebellion in all sorts of other genres. And then it also taught me to question that music would have to contain rebellion in order to be good, right? Like you rebel against the idea of rebellion in a sense and start saying, well, like who says that's the only way to make good music? Who says that good music has to be rebellious? What if it's not? That's something I sort of grapple with in the book, this idea that if you think of music, I wrote an essay for the New York Times in 2004 about rockism, which is this idea of taking rock and roll and treating rock and roll like that's the only way to make good music. Like good music should be kind of scruffy and kind of raw and kind of real. And there are tons of people who've made great music using those kinds of assumptions and upholding those values, but maybe that makes it harder to hear Luther Vandross or Anita Baker or George Strait or Reba McIntyre or like all sorts of other people who are upholding different values, right? Like the value of rawness is cool, but the value of like a polished sound can be cool too. The idea of like rebellion and defiance can be cool, but you can hear different values on like the first Cyndi Lauper record, which in its own way, you can hear some bits of rebellion on that, but you can also hear fun and colorfulness and buoyancy and all these other things. And so part of my idea with the book was to talk about how different communities tend to have their own assumptions and their own values. And that those histories are partly stories of people arguing over what those values and assumptions should be. What should it mean to be an R&B singer? What should it mean to be a country singer? Sometimes these arguments are people like me, music critics, arguing, sometimes annoying everyone with our arguments. But often these assumptions shape the way musicians think about what they're doing too. And often, as much as musicians like to say, and many musicians have told me personally, like, oh, I don't really think about it, man. It's like, it's all music. I just make good music. I don't really think about these rules. It's like, well, okay, you might think you don't think about these rules, but you've been shaped by them. You've worked within them. And even your assumptions about like, well, what would it mean to stay true to your base audience? What would it mean to try and go for crossover success? 
even those assumptions are going to be shaped by what world you live in, right? Is using a keyboard, is that a way of staying true to something? Is that a way of rebelling against something? Is that the way of reaching out to some broader audience? And so one of the things that I loved about punk rock was that it was argumentative, but that helped me to see that music, popular music, has in some sense been one long argument or one long series of arguments. Yeah, and I think also to go back to your point from your rockism essay that upholding certain values, it's also who's elevating those values. So the kind of rock, scruffy rock, you know, authentic, that that might have some certain, you know, racial element. It might have some certain gender element and that, Mm -hmm. you know, skewing other values might be because they bring forth ideas of blackness or ideas of women like that soft Mm -hmm. rock. I feel like this soft, hard dichotomy Mm -hmm. in the book comes up so much. And it's like, oh, for men, like being called soft, it just makes them think of, as Billy Joel says, in you quote him as saying like a soft dick. That's what he thinks when people call him a soft rocker. It's like an assault to his manhood. But maybe women wouldn't care if someone called them soft because women are supposed to be soft. Right. But then you see it and you see it the other way, too, in something like the Riot Girl which in its own way, the Riot Girl movement is a rebellion against softness or against expectations of softness. But at a certain while, like after a few years, the Riot Girl movement runs up against this very issue. Well, wouldn't this movement be more inclusive if it weren't so punk? Which is weird because punk kind of gives Riot Girl its identity. And the Riot Girl movement is built on two ideas, one of which is really easy to defend and one of which is kind of hard to defend. The easy to defend idea is that punk rock needs feminism. Okay, that seems like self-evidently, like it's not hard to make that case. But the trickier idea is that feminism needs punk rock. And that turns out to be sort of a complicated idea because punk rock, like any movement, is inclusive and exclusive. And so what does it mean to have this new kind of feminist movement that's inclusive in certain ways, but because it's linked to punk rock, is also going to be exclusive in a number of ways because a lot of people, most people, don't actually enjoy punk rock. That's like part of the point of punk rock. And that's part of the irony of punk rock politics, right? As a kid, you know, I loved the Dead Kennedys when I was in high school. You know, Bay Area, super leftist, 80s kind of hardcore punk political band. And Part of the idea of listening to the Dead Kennedys was like, they were really annoying. Like the singer had a really annoying voice. They played fast. Like it was clear that they weren't going to conquer the world, even compared to a band like The Clash, who were in some ways sort of populist and inclusive and everyone can enjoy Rock the Casbah. The Dead Kennedys, like, no, they're not going to go super mainstream. That's the point of the Dead Kennedys. But they're also a very political band. And there's a tension between the idea of saying like, we're not trying to convert people with our music but we do want to like change the world with our political ideas. And so beyond a certain point, I started thinking, if the music is designed to be off-putting to the general public, isn't it possible that the politics are also designed to be off-putting to the general public? And what does it mean to espouse politics where the whole idea of your political stance is that it's supposed to be offensive or unappealing to the general public? Is your idea that like, oh, people are going to continue to hate the dead Kennedys, but they're going to embrace the dead Kennedys idea and change America? And so there's always this tension in this idea of radical politics and this tension that you hear in a lot of musical genres, too, between like, how popular do we really want to be? You hear that in R&B where there's this desire from R&B acts like we want more popularity. Luther Vandross always wanted a number one pop hit and he never had one. And You know, he wanted like bigger audiences, you know, that's more success, that's more money. But that said, the bigger your audience gets as an R&B singer, the more you go mainstream, the more black listeners are going to be a minority within your audience, right? And so there's also a pushback against that, where there's a certain amount of anxiety in the R&B world about going to pop. Whitney Houston comes out and has more success in the pop world, in a sense, than in the R&B world in the beginning. And, you know, one publication calls her the prom queen of soul, which is like kind of a compliment, but kind of an insult. And she gets booed at the Soul Train Awards for winning like an R&B award because the idea is like she's too pop. She's like not really R&B. So in a bunch of genres, and you see this in a very vivid way in R&B, there is this push and pull of how much do we want to stay within this genre and be a quote-unquote real R&B act? And how much do we want to 
reach out to everyone. And some of these debates have sort of faded with time, right? You read now about critics suggesting that maybe Prince was kind of a sellout. And you're like, well, that's not an argument we have today. But, you know, Nelson George in his brilliant book, The Death of Rhythm and Blues, writes about this idea that like Prince is somehow perceived as like not a quote unquote real black man. He's light-skinned, he has a white actress play his mother in a film when in fact his mother was black. He's effeminate in a way that to some critics seems like a repudiation of quote-unquote real black masculinity. And so the idea that you read in the Nelson George book is like, oh, is this what it takes to be successful in the mainstream? Is that you've got to be like Prince or you've got to be like Michael Jackson? And again, we don't really hear that kind of critique of Prince in 2021, but it's interesting to go back and to realize that those were the kinds of arguments that people were having and that it was shaping people's careers, right? At a certain point, Whitney Houston goes out and gets R&B producers with the idea that like, okay, this record, I think the third album is going to be much more of an R&B album. And like, I'm going to try and get that audience and prove that I'm really committed to R&B. And you see that push-pull in country music the same way. People trying to figure out the twin desires for like freedom and for purity. And they kind of rub up against each other. And is it, does freedom, does that really mean like catering to your base and being among your people, however you define that? Or does freedom mean going off and galloping into the mainstream and all sorts of people are listening to your music? You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Kahela Fasene about his new book, Major Labels, a History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Cynthia Cruz on the line with us today. Her latest book is called The Melancholia of Class, A Manifesto for the Working Class, and Cynthia is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Cynthia, what book are you going to recommend? So this is probably obvious, but I'm going to recommend Mark Fisher's Ghosts of My Life, Writings About Depression, Ontology, and Lost Futures. Okay, tell us more about this book. Yes, I will. So this book was so important for me because um, Mark Fisher's work, and specifically this book, um, really was the entryway for my understanding, my own class background. I really didn't know, didn't know, and then... um, you know, the way that he writes about his own experience as a working class subject and um, talks about mental illness and, and pop culture, I saw myself. Yeah, so he was sort of like the gateway drug for all of this. And um, and it was because of Mark Fisher, yeah, that I, I had these realizations. So I'm super grateful. And the book is just, I read it all the time. It's so wonderful. And how did you come across the book initially? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I don't know if I could say. I was recently wondering about that. Do you remember when you first read it? <laughs> I don't. No, it's just this kind of like um, void. I don't know. I think a lot of the things that I come across are from going down rabbit holes. And that's probably what happened. I was probably reading something somewhere that led to something. And I ended up there. Just how a lot of this stuff happens. That's okay. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Yeah. So Mark Fisher's Ghosts of My Life, Writings on Depression, Hauntology, and Lost Features. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Thank you. We've been talking to Cynthia Cruz. Her latest book is called The Melancholy of Class, A Manifesto for the Working Class. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Kella Fasene, author of Major Labels. One of the most confounding splits that I feel like kind of does uh, shape, you know, the next 50 years of popular music is the split of rock and roll and R&B. You know, rock and roll started off, I think, mostly as quote unquote, black music, that it was invented by black musicians. And then suddenly it becomes a very, you know, predominantly white category. And R&B is split off from it, although there's so much overlap of, you know, and, and that becomes a black category of music. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how that barrier came to be and, um, but at the same time, plenty of R&B acts were super popular. 
uh, and right. probably had a lot of white listeners as well. And I don't know how much vice versa, but you know that this is that this is basically in some ways a, a pretty arbitrary uh, decision that then goes on to really shape um, American music in this country. I think it's a I think it's a strange decision. I'm not sure it's arbitrary because I think it probably reflects the social divisions in America, right? You, the music, popular music is somewhat segregated because America is somewhat segregated. And, you know, throughout these 50 years that I write about in the book, people have tried to struggle to figure out how to feel about that segregation, right? Like it's in some ways it's like kind of cool in the, that moment in the 1960s where R&B and rock and roll are like almost synonyms and the who were playing like maximum R&B and the Supremes are considered part of the rock revolution. And it's sort of all one thing. There's something cool about that. But if you're someone who really values black music, I think what you see happening is like, oh, now you're going to have to compete for that audience with like the Rolling Stones. Like, and, and because what happens in America is that you know, if it all becomes one thing, then black musicians and black listeners are likely to be a minority, right? That's just the mathematical truth. And so there's also a desire to create a community in which black listeners are maybe not a minority or which black listeners are really important. And in fact, the move from R&B to calling it soul music in the late 60s is the idea that we're going to do something that the Motown model is all about crossover and all about we're going to make huge songs and we're going to be the sound of young America, not the sound of young black America, right? And so the Motown dream is very much a crossover dream. And in, in reaction to that, you get this soul music thing, which is the idea that this music is going to be A, a little grittier, but soul is not something you play. It's like something you have. It's something you are. And so soul music is going to be a little more defined as like, this is black music. This has a message. This is part of a movement. And so in some ways, the move from R&B to soul is a move toward a more segregated form of music. It's a move toward, you know, James Brown, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And again, people have tried to figure out over the years, like, how should we feel about this, right? Like, should, should, should Rufus and Sly Stone and these acts in the 70s that are drawing from rock and roll and R&B, on the one hand, you could say like, well, let's consider these rock and roll groups. Let's, let's, not, let's not cede that term rock and roll to just white acts. Like, let's insist upon the fact that George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic are, should be part of the rock and roll tradition, right? And when you listen to an Eddie Hazel guitar solo, like that makes a lot of sense. At the same time, there's a lot of power in the idea of George Clinton playing black music. Cornell West writes about the sort of the blackness of George Clinton. And the thing I keep coming back to is that this notion of musical blackness is a really slippery concept, right? George Clinton himself was proud of the idea that his music was too black for the white kids and too white for the black kids. He was proud of the fact that P-Funk was getting played on like, F underground FM rock radio stations. And so even as he was singing about Chocolate City and all this other stuff, he was embracing a sort of hybrid nature of his music. You see this, this controversy again in the early 80s where Billboard renames its soul music chart, renames it black music. And to some people that was kind of inspiring, like let's name this, let's name this tradition and let's give credit to the idea that this is music that comes from black America, this is ours, right? And then some other people were like, well, I don't know, this sounds like segregation. This sounds like you're taking all the black artists and putting them in this category off to the side. And it's, it's a complicated question that I think is hard to answer because I think most people can see the value of having black music and having a place where black musicians can be celebrated and black listeners can be prioritized. That said, America is only 12% black. And so to the extent that you have black music and black genres in America, you're also going to have white music. You're also going to have white genres in America. And the question is, like, how do we feel about that? How, how do we think about that? Is it possible to celebrate white genres in a way? I mean, it, it's one thing, it's easy to say like, oh, country music should be more diverse. But what are we saying when we say that? Are we saying that country music should quote unquote resemble America? 
and be like 12% black? Are we saying that all genres should resemble America and be 12% black and 19% Hispanic and 58% white? I mean, it's a hard question to answer. And I think at least in the history of music, at least in the past 50 years, it's easy to see ways in which a certain amount of division, a certain amount of divisiveness, a certain amount of segregation even, has produced the sort of diverse landscape that lots of us love, especially those of us that like to, as listeners, kind of go from genre to genre. And it kind of leads into my question, which is that you come out in this book as being like a black metal fan. And that's a style of metal that has pretty pronounced neo-Nazi sympathies. And um, some of the bands, yeah. Yeah, some of the bands. And um, and elsewhere, you know, there's this kind of, uh, you ha- seem to have kind of a, it's like the, the moral aspect of music is not something that you really feel like it's completely your job to reckon with as a critic of the musicians, let's say. So even you talk about R. Kelly and how if you would have known at the time, like, I mean, I have to like agree that I love R. Kelly's music as much as like whatever the the singles that I've heard on the radio, I would still dance to them now. Same with Michael Jackson, but we might all feel like a little bit more strange about dancing to them now or like the that 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 conflict of of enjoying music and this kind of like visceral quality of music that is infectious that it's it's not even like literature where you just wouldn't open the book it's everywhere you hear it and it and it really moves you almost involuntarily but this reckoning of okay well here's what these musicians have done um i guess yeah just to talk about how you that that even you could listen to black metal that has neo-nazi sympathies and and maybe the lyrics are awful but you're still like listening to the music i I was just yeah i mean I kind of have two answers to that. The first answer has to do with me getting into punk rock in the first place, where, uh, you know, I've read accounts from other people where they get into punk rock and their idea is like, oh, these people are just like me. These could be my friends. This shows that anyone can make music, right? It's relatable. Whereas when I got into punk rock, it wasn't exactly that it was relatable. Like it was a little scary. It was a little alien. Like I remember going to see Fugazi in 1991 Boston, St. Patrick's Day, and like there's a bunch of skinheads at the show, and I was like, uh, "Are they gonna are they gonna beat me up? Like, what's gonna happen here?" And I can't deny that that was part of the appeal that you could go into this scary world and be a little intimidated by the music. And so, at, at various times, there is a power you get from feeling like the musicians are kind of on your side and that they believe the stuff you believe in. When I was I remember in in Boston for I was part of this group of kids that were all into like very idealistic hardcore punk and we would do benefit concerts at health food stores and like the idea was like everyone's on the same page and like we're not messing with anything on a major label it's very independent and like-minded and vegetarian and everything else and there's real power to that but there's also real power I discovered in the years after that to listening to like hip-hop records where they were saying things and using language that I would never use and, you know, saying things that I would never endorse. And that sense of difference, otherness, alienness, scariness was part of the appeal. So for me, I've, I've personally never had a hard time listening to music that's scary or listening to music that's that's using or trying to harness the power of evil, whether it's in the very kind of like abstract sense of like a Black Sabbath record, or it's in like a more present sense of like some black metal band where you're like, oh, these members really do have neo-Nazi sympathies or something, or whether it's just some musician who believes some stuff I don't believe in, as many musicians do. That's never been problematic for me. I think A lot of these debates, and this is the second answer to that, a lot of these debates are really debates about what belongs in the mainstream, right? There was this moment in 1990 where like someone actually gets arrested for selling a two live crew album. But in the end, we kind of came to a place where like none of this stuff is illegal. But like actually what we're arguing over is like, well, like what belongs on the radio? What belongs on Saturday Night Live? Like, there's all sorts of music that you're not going to hear in a hotel lobby, right? Just because, like, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to play the Dead Kennedys, probably. Like, just because that's not what belongs in that place, right? And so, you know, some of these questions are really questions of 
well, if, if, if a musician has, you know, is, is guilty of, of horrendous behavior, does that get them kicked out of the mainstream? Does that mean that they get thrown off of wedding playlists? Because again, there's a whole lot of songs they're not going to play at a wedding. And like maybe R. Kelly joins that list of songs that are not going to get played at a wedding. And, you know, that seems completely, that makes a lot of sense to me. Personally, as a listener, I'm always going to be interested in some of the stuff that's considered like not, not acceptable for various reasons, for all sorts of reasons. But it makes sense to me that as long as you have a mainstream, again, this is about inclusion and exclusion, you're going to have a whole bunch of stuff that's excluded from the mainstream by definition. And so a lot of those conversations to me sound like conversations about that and, and sound like conversations about us rethinking like, well, what belongs in polite society? But again, having grown up loving punk rock, it was always clear to me that my favorite bands weren't going to be on the radio, weren't going to be celebrated in Rolling Stone magazine, weren't going to be on Saturday Night Live. And so I've always been comfortable in like seeking out some of that stuff that's not part of the mainstream discussion because everything can't be mainstream. And some stuff is always going to be, you know, excluded from the mainstream, sometimes for very silly reasons and sometimes for very good reasons. How do you think just with the business model of music really shifting, like maybe over the last decade, that the mainstream has changed? Um, you know, do you, do you think that some of the way that we hear music, some of the way it's made, some of the way that people are able to make money on it has really shifted what popular music is? Or do you think it's not so related? Well, yeah, it, it was it was strange to be finishing the book during this like horrible, scary, weird, boring, sad period of the pandemic when all of a sudden like everything's kind of paused, right? And, and almost all musical consumption becomes virtual for a little while. And it definitely feels like we're in a moment where some of these genre boundaries tend to be dissolving a little bit, right? Like what genre is Lil Nas X? What genre is Post Malone? Like, I don't know. And, you know, having spent time kind of immersed in these arguments over the past half century, I realized that there have been a series of these moments over the years, right? You look at the late 70s and it feels like everything is going disco. And maybe, right, the, the Rolling Stones and the Supremes are considered sort of part of the same rock and roll movement in the mid-60s, right? By the early 70s, Rolling Stones and Diana Ross, they're in like different areas. It's rock and roll over here, R&B over there. By the time you get to the disco era, it's like, oh, the Rolling Stones made a disco record. Diana Ross made a disco record. There's a Star Wars disco record. Rick Dees is doing disco duck. And John Travolta is making his disco movie and the Bee Gees. And everyone's doing disco. And it's like, oh, maybe everything's coming together. And maybe these genre divides are getting blurry again. And, you know, that's a, in some ways, that's a really um, inspiring time, right? Because disco is bringing in all these influences from Latin music and self soul records are coming in. And obviously, you know, it's coming out of, you know, gay nightlife and, and gay club culture. And so that's really exciting to see the idea that a group like the village people would be mainstream um, is, is something that you was, would have been harder to imagine 10 years earlier. So it's, it's a very kind of optimistic and sometimes euphoric moment. But of course the disco moment also generates this huge backlash where, you know, rock and roll fans are like, we hate disco. And they have this disco riot at a baseball game in, in Chicago. But also, like, the punks are sneering at disco. And even some of these underground DJs are sneering at disco because it's kind of gone too mainstream. And the, these, these producers who would go on to create house music in Chicago and, and techno in Detroit you know, they're not interested in disco duck either. They're trying to create something different. And so you get this backlash that sort of sends sparks shooting in all directions. And so I do sometimes wonder if the current moment of listening to music on streaming services and people kind of dabbling in other genres and crossing over and it feels sometimes like everyone's listening to the same stuff. I'm like, oh, is this just setting up the next generation of backlash? Because I think that urge, the urge to be like, for everyone to come together, but the urge to hold other people at arm's length and to say, I'm not like those people. I hate those people. Those people listen to crap and I want nothing to do with them. Those are very, that, very human urges. And then maybe you might say very American urges, right? It's a, we're a divisive species and this is a divisive country. So it strikes me that those divisions are always going to end up reflected in our music. And insofar as some of the old 
um, genres, the old communities, if they do melt away, I suspect new communities, new genres will emerge in their place to give people that sense of identity, right? As long as we're getting part of our identity from the music we're listening to, that's going to be partly a negative identity as well. It's a positive identity. And we'll want ways to set ourselves apart from other people. And those, you know, those identities can fracture and become little groups. They can sort of clump and become big groups. That's something you see culturally and politically right now, right? This idea that like, oh, maybe there's only two groups. It's like a red team and a blue team in America. And, you know, can you imagine a world in which genres are bigger and the enmity between genres is that much more intense? We're not going to be like those people. Um, maybe, or maybe we go back again to some of these smaller micro genres, right? I, I went to high school in the 1990s, which was a very kind of tribal time. And it was a time where it felt like, you know, the ravers dressed like this and the goth kids dressed like that. And like, you know, you were supposed to pick your pants based on like what music you listen to. Um, and so, yeah, maybe that something like that comes back. But I think no matter what happens, a certain amount of push and pull is probably built into the way that we think about each other and therefore built into the way that we listen to music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you, you know, your father opens the book and I know that he was a, a religion scholar. Yeah. And I, and I wonder what kind of discussions you had, if, if any, about the kind of um, crossover between, you know, a devotion to certain kinds of music or the tribal aspect of music and his study of religion. And also he was a music lover. So um, yes. what, what, kind of, I, what kind of talks did you ever have with him about that? I will say it's not a coincidence that it was my mother and not my father who took me to my first punk rock concert. I don't, I don't recall him being particularly eager to be my chaperone at the Ramones in 1990. So yes, he never, he never, he never pretended to be particularly interested in the, the, the punk or the hip hop or the other stuff I was listening to. But, you know, he was someone who thought a lot about group identities and group differences and the ways in which and the ways in which, you know, in his case, religion reflected some pretty basic human desire to sort of come together and and also to, to set oneself apart. He was, you know, he was he was skeptical. He was I remember he was incredibly skeptical of this idea that like, oh, it's all religion. It's all spirituality. All these religions tell the same story like he was not one of those people. He was these people who said like, no, these different religions make different assumptions, have different histories. And in order to sort of coexist, we should learn more about these different histories and appreciate the fact that on some irreducible level, these things are different. He was a, he was largely a scholar of Christianity and Islam and how they interacted in Western Africa and around the world. So I think in some way that I probably didn't understand back then, and maybe I'm only starting to understand now, that might have that might have influenced me to think about this stuff in a in a sort of a serious way and to just be curious about the ways in which people identified themselves and the ways in which people thought about who they were. He was very he was very curious and had that sense of just wanting to know well like how do they think about Islam in Indonesia and how's that different from the way they think about it in Turkey or the way they think about it in Gambia, where he was from, or Senegal? And how are these different forms of Christianity different? What would it mean for the Catholic Church? He, he was a converted to Catholicism. How would it mean? What would it mean for the Catholic Church to be a majority non-white church and for that to be really to really fundamentally define the nature of the Catholic Church. And I won't I won't pretend to be wrestling with questions as as weighty as the ones he was wrestling with, right? He 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 left the Gambia and becomes this world-renowned scholar of um religious history just so his kid could listen to records. But um I do think that, uh, you know, I do think that that sense of curiosity, which I think is something you see in a lot of immigrants, right? I moved to America when I was five. And I, I think I probably never shook that sense of trying to figure out like, well, what's going on in America? Like, how does America work? I think that's one of the reasons why this book is is very kind of America centric. And it's partly a product of me just trying to figure out America. So and I think, you know, when I was listening to something like country music, I write about how to me it like might as well have been world music, right? It wasn't, it's not something I grew up around. It was like this new, interesting, amazingly musically rich, in some ways culturally similar, in some ways culturally different uh, tradition that I could engage with. And so 
there's a sense that all of these kinds of music, I do sometimes hear a little bit like an alien. And so, you know, you mentioned the fact of like how I kind of grapple with the sort of moral dimension of musical genres. But to me, the first task as a listener is always to be, is, for me, is to be descriptive and not prescriptive. And so, you know, I'm always surprised by the way genres work. I'm always surprised by like what turns out to be popular in, in America and across the world. And so when I hear country or I hear hip hop, my first instinct is usually not to try and fix the genre. and like, well, here's what hip hop should sound like. Here's the way country music should work. But it's just to sort of stop and say, huh, why is it that like those records really resonate with people? What is it that people are getting out of this? What, why is it that hip hop evolved in this way that people definitely didn't see coming 20, 30 years ago, right? Why, why is it that, that happened? And so that this book is kind of trying to answer some of those questions of why did things turn out the way they did? And, and, and inevitably, it's not the way I would have predicted. Usually it's not the way other people would have predicted either. And when people are saying like, this is what country music needs, you know, in the 1980s, they weren't thinking about like, oh, Garth Brooks is going to come along and Shania Twain is going to come along and the Dixie Chicks are going to come along. And in very different ways, they're going to like redefine the country mainstream. Right? This isn't this isn't the way the thing anyone was expecting, just like no one was predicting that like young thug would be a super influential rapper and he'd be like wearing a dress on his album cover and he'd be sort of you know, not really enunciating and like sort of singing and moaning and yelping on his records and doing this sort of like very kind of like psychedelic sort of R&B influenced kind of bluesy thing. Um, again, it was a surprise. And I think that part of the reason that these genres last the way they do is that they can be surprising. They can, they can show us things that we didn't know they were going to show us. And, and that just because a genre exists, it doesn't mean it can be doesn't mean it has to be predictable. And sometimes it survives by being unpredictable instead. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Kalitha. Thanks, Kate. This has been so much fun. That was Kalitha Sene. His new book is Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.